Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Zaire. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth of the story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class. And we want to bring you in. Okay, so this is the third episode in a 10-part series inspired by the people I taught memoir writing in a men's prison. This series will bring you stories written by my former memoir students as well as formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people from around the United States. Their experience and voices, like those of many incarcerated people, are often marginalized and unheard. To help us get this right, Zaire will be contributing his feedback and commentary throughout the series as co-host along with Andrea and me. Zaire is a poet, musician, and teaching artist who teaches writing and poetry in school and juvenile detention facilities. Zaire, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to say something before we continue. We want to be respectful of those who have been personally affected by violence. So... We don't mean to sensationalize crime or sensationalize someone who breaks the law. What we're trying to do is share stories because we believe that stories lead to understanding. And if there's something we need more of these days, it's understanding. On episode 115, which was the first episode in this series, we went into detail about our motivation and our hope for airing these stories I told my story of meeting Too Tall and some of the other men you'll hear from in this series. Please listen to that episode if you haven't already. On today's episode, we're sharing a story by Roderick Richardson. Rod took care of six brothers and sisters when his mom was incarcerated and at 12 started selling drugs to keep food on the table. His story's not unique, unfortunately. Rod is serving a life sentence for robbery. Also today, we have a special guest, Karen Gedney. Dr. Gedney was a prison doctor for 30 years. She ran the only regional prison medical facility in the state of Nevada. We asked Karen to give us an up-close and very personal opinion of the prison doctor experience. We will get to that interview later in the show. After the break, Rod will read his essay called Tree. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. I'm Allison Langer, and every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, I host First Draft. It's a class, kinda, because you'll get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a group where you come together with other writers online, write to a prompt and share what you wrote. It's the only way to get better. Come join me. Check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com or go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio to learn more. 
We're back. This is Andrea Askowitz, and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. Here's Rod Richardson reading his story, Tree. My name is Roger Richardson. Born 22 minutes before New Year's Day 1965. My mom wanted a New Year's baby, but I guess I was anxious to come into a world. If only I had known that I have only 11 good years. The first 11 years of my life was filled with love and the ability to dream. My mom and dad divorced when I was 12 years old, and I went from living in a secure family environment to being the man of the house. Being the oldest of six, I felt it was my duty to help my mom take care of the family. With poverty insistently riding my backs, I got tired of watching my mom get evicted, then cry. She ended up in jail for writing bad checks, mostly for clothes, rent, and food. I'm in prison now. I was convicted of armed robbery when a drug deal went bad. I was 27 when I entered prison, and now I'm 56. For 29 years, 7 months, and 23 days, I've been incarcerated. Today is August 13, 2021. I'm alone, dead, amongst the living. Walking within a bottomless sea, the lights come on at 5 a.m., and a motorized sound of my cell door pops open. My alarm clock here in Florida Department of Corrections. Each morning, my heartbeat accelerates, contemplating another day. Will someone die of natural causes and overdose, or will someone be stabbed over a 65-cent suit? In here, death appears like a thief in the night. Arguments escalate over small things like staring at someone or gambling on a football game. The drugs and games keep up most of the trouble, but only a cell phone could cost a man his life. When the lights come on in the morning, I wipe the tears from the corner of my eyes, force myself up, take care of my personal hygiene, the madness begins. I step out of my cell, the noise instantly elevates. I live on the second floor, so I have a penthouse view. Under the back stairs, in the corner, I see the transgenders twerking, touching their toes, talking and laughing loudly. They keep calling each other girl. Pop Simmons and old man G walk in circles around the dorm, reminiscing about when they were young. They are stuck in a time walk from 30 years ago, unable to accept it's 2021. Other sales doors slide open. Inmates prepare for breakfast. It's the beginning of another unpredictable day. The intercom comes to life. The officer yells, diabetics in peer line. Violators with iron stomachs line up to leave at 6 a.m. On a mission to eat two or three trays. Some just to have something to brag about this early in the morning. I'm not sure why they are in a hurry. Breakfast is always cold. The grids stick together like yellow glue. The sausage is so cold and rubbery, you can bounce it and still hit a three-pointer in the garbage can. This is a guarantee. Along with the officers yelling, y'all have five minutes to eat. In the eyes of young, cocky, oppressive officers, every man wearing blue is the same. We are herded like cattle on a trail, always being yelled at, told to hurry up, to eat 
to get in our cell or walk beside the yellow line. In this isolated sea, bullshit is so transparent that emotions turn thinking men into angry animals. Small incidents turn into major confrontation. Yesterday, Reed, the larger man, bought me a new pair of prison issue, plastic crocs. Crocs in here might last two or three months before a hole come in the bottom. Reed set them outside in the hall by wing three entrance door. He knocked on the glass to get my attention, then walked away. I knocked on the glass to get the officer's attention, pointed down at the crocs. The officer waved me off when I knocked again. The officer whose voice I couldn't hear through the glass, but whose lips said, what the fuck you want? Go sit your ass down. I went from zero to crazy. I pointed up at the officer station and said, fuck you. I'm not sure if anyone saw me, and I could send a bane on the window to make sure he understood then I thought about my odds and sat down. It's so easy to end up in confinement about nothing. My eyes settled on the cross, praying nobody stole them. Ten minutes later, inmate opened the door to come in, and I reached outside and grabbed the cross. At six o'clock, the intercom reminds us it's time for breakfast. While he speaks, the officer blinks the dorm lights and yells, Child, child, child! I think this asshole should have been a DJ. I look up at him, and as I walk out the front door, all of us inmates start our journey to the kitchen, a.k.a. the child hall. Inmates in wheelchairs race as soon as they smell the fresh morning air. The stars twinkle, and the moon is bright. Most of the conversation is about last night's football game. I look around, and I see what looks like a man hiding up in a tree. A few officers are standing around smoking and talking shit. One yells, everybody get inside the yellow line. I get a funny feeling, the hairs on my arms stand up. My body starts tingling, my prison senses feel trouble. The door of G-Dorm opens, and out comes another wing of inmates. I see Mount J-Rock, Doodoo and Dread, laughing and talking to please the crowd. They are not looking in the direction of the tree. As I turn the corner, the child hall comes into view. We walk inside the yellow line, same as always. When I'm almost at the center gate, I look back at the tree, just as Duke jumps from his perch. Duke charges directly at J-Rock like a bull on a mission, and Duke's hand is a six-inch shiny shank. His goal must be to seek and destroy, because two more of his own was appear with shame. Duke plunges the knife into J-Rod's chest over and over and over again. Doodle and Dread take off running as J-Rod lay across the yellow line in a pool of blood. I'm a witness, but I see nothing. And here, a loose tongue will cost you your life. The officers order everyone to stop and be still. My appetite for cold grits and rubbery sausage is forgotten. The officer yells, all inmates report to your dorms. As more officers run across the grass, the nurse runs by with an inmate orderly pushing the chain gang ambulance. We look in the direction of the tree. As we herd it back to G-Dorm, we pass J-Rock, who is loaded onto a stretcher. He's motionless, and his blues are so soft in blood, they look brown. 
most of the inmates are probably thinking, as I am, that J-Rock is dead. It's so quiet. You can hear roaches crawling. Everybody's caught up in their own thoughts. As the sound of rescue sirens invade the compound, I hear the helicopter arrive, and five minutes later, it's up and gone. During lockdown, four sergeants go from cell to cell as the inmates what we saw. Most inmates, they think just like me, so we mind our own business in order to live another day. We stay on lockdown for 72 hours. The only movement is a 10-minute shower and an escort to the child hall and back. Most of the conversation is about Duke and J-Rock, and I Duke stabbed him 27 times. Duke killed J-Rock for robbing him of his cell phone, which at Walmart cost $35.99. Two Miami-Dade police officers escorted Duke off the compound, handcuffed and headed to TGK, the main jail. He was charged with premeditated murder, never to be seen on this plantation again. Now, two years later, every time I walk past the tree, a reflection flashes in my mind of how precious life is. In here, alone, dead amongst the living, the unexpected, alone with the cold grits and rubbery sausage is always expected. I reside among a sea of lost souls that slowly deteriorated, sinking into the darkest depths of loneliness. I walk cautiously alone. That is so sad, this story. This is just heartbreaking. I mean, the way he set it up, it's just, it's all something terrible is going to happen. Like even his birth was wrong. It's so good the way he wrote this story, but oh my God, I'm like, I'm having such a hard time just like talking about it because of what he witnessed and how he can't even talk about it. Zaire, how did this hit you? What stuck out to me the most, uh, like Andrea was saying, the entire the entire piece is is just hits home. But I think what stuck out to me the most was the beginning, talking about the first eleven years and how um, I think I'm trying to remember the exact words he said, but him having the ability to dream in that time, and that was very uh, poignant uh, for the simple fact that. It speaks to how much trauma is placed on a child when they have to assume too much responsibility too quickly. And that often leads to those, you know, knee-jerk decisions that, you know, most of us get to learn from. But when you place so much responsibility on a child from such an early age, you know, having to be the the oldest sibling and and, you know, take part in, in raising the rest due to a lack of a father figure and, and watch mother struggle because she's doing it all her own. The trauma placed on, on a child is enough to drive them to do admittedly stupid things, but things that they view as necessary in the moment. Yeah, his mom was put in jail for writing bad checks. And then he got convicted of armed robbery 
when a drug deal went bad when he was 27. The line for 29 years, seven months and 23 days, I've been incarcerated. That's so chilling to me because he knows he's counting the minutes. And let's talk about the brilliance of the way he sets it up. I mean, you guys both commented on his early years. It set it up because here's a guy like if if any if anyone had said, oh, my God, this guy robbed me or whatever. He did not rob like a normal person. I know the backstory of this robbery. This person robbed him first and he went back and got back what was his right It's not like you can go to a judge and be like, this guy, you know, (laughs) so but then he got caught because the guy ratted him out. Right. So there's a situation in this type of organization in in any sort of crime where (laughs) if it's going to be somebody else's ass on the line, they rat you out. Right. Everyone knows that we want the bad guys to go to jail and we want the bad guys. I mean, I think we're ingrained to think that the bad guys need to go. But in this and I don't want to make excuses from the for the guy. But he sets it up with this traumatic childhood that we're rooting for him. Like, oh, my God, we wish the robbery, you know, like he hadn't gotten caught. Right. So it's a it's a we talk about that as like, how does the narrator get you on his side? And I don't think he intentionally did that. But by telling the truth and telling his story, we all get it. And we want the best for him, which was for him to complete this robbery and not get caught. Right. Well, what storytelling does, especially when we know the narrator, is it shows us that there are no bad guys or that everyone's a bad guy. And we happen to be rooting for this one because this is the one telling the story. But he also sets it up so that we know that he comes from some difficulty. But what's brilliant about the story is, um, so he sets it up, we know that something bad is going to happen. You know that even his birth was bad in a way, like it wasn't ideal. No, 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 no. It's it's not his birth. It's he says the first 11 years was really good. He didn't realize the first 11 years would be the best of his life. I know, but he wanted his mom wanted a New Year's baby and he was born 22 minutes early. So even his birth (laughs) didn't work out the way it just a a little detail that he starts with. Like, I I didn't come into the world the way I was supposed to. So now look, listen to how many bad things are going to happen. But um. But what I think the story is about, though, is about how the unexpected is expected. So he describes life in prison in a way that I thought was like, to me, it sounded like this is a typical day. He's He wakes up by this terrible sound. The transgender people are twerking. These other people are talking about life 20, 30 years ago, not willing to admit that it's 2021. You know, like he's just showing us a regular day. And then on this regular day, when they're herded like cattle to the chow hall, and like he uses so many great details, like the guy who says chow, 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 like he's like, our narrator is so funny. He's like, that guy should have been a DJ. Like he has his, his way of hearing and seeing the day that I thought was just charming and delightful, kind of. Like the way he said, you can bounce a sausage and then still get it, hit a three pointer. Like that's a really bouncy sausage. That's bad. And then and then the whole tree scene. And I, I was just like, oh my God. Oh my God. Like I couldn't even take it in. It was so scary to me. And then they have to just act like nothing. But his prison senses, like 
I just got that. And I was like, oh my God, when you're there, you're hyper vigilant, you're hyper aware. And he even mentions it, like the guys who were talking and joking and they're not paying attention. And when you're not paying attention, bad shit can happen to you. <sighs> I remember when you read this, you had something that you had a question about the chain gang ambulance. Do yeah. you get it? No, I don't. I don't get it. Zaire, did you get it? Can we, can we go back to it? Yeah, the chain gang ambulance. I just thought that was brilliant. And Andrew was like, what's that? As more officers run across the grass, the nurse runs by with an inmate orderly pushing a chain gang ambulance. I don't know what that means. I mean, to me, it was super clear, not because I've seen it, but because I just imagined like it's a stretcher, like a steel stretcher that they're pushing down. Like you don't get the ambulance pull in. They just a huge stretcher comes by because then later he says, we passed J-Rock, who is loaded onto a stretcher. But what's the chain gang ambulance? It's like, chicka, 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 you know, it's like an old rickety stainless steel, like, uh, gurney. Okay. I just, I don't know. Chain gang? Everybody in there is a criminal, so it's the chain gang. And also because he has a lot of references to um, uh, slavery. And so it's like the chain gang. The croc scene. I, I was really taken in by the that moment where he goes from zero to crazy. Like, I got it. So so it sounds like the laundry man is his friend, I guess, and and was giving him a new pair of Crocs. So there was a guard who was not letting him get the Crocs. Was that it? And it was like, he just got so mad because this officer wasn't letting our narrator get his Crocs. And then the narrator got so mad. (sighs) And it just reminds me of being in school and the teacher's like, because I said so, or the parent, you know, what? Like, we can't have a discussion here. Like, let's be realistic. Let's have a conversation. And there's none of that. It's just such a hierarchy. I say you do. It doesn't matter. And these poor guys get never, they just get humiliated. They get don't get listened to. Yeah, just let's be civil to each other. No civility there at all. Like imagine, and you've got this young asshole, probably like a 20-something year old guy, because that's what's happening now with officers. They they're hiring them le- younger and younger because they can't get like somebody who's mature and normal. So you've got like all these young kids in there telling these older guys like what to do. I mean, how, how bad can that feel? I feel bad. No one will talk to you. No one will treat you as a person. And I just, I feel for him when that whole scene, I'm just like, oh my God, he can't even speak up or he's going to confinement. Well, that's interesting because that you're now saying that the guards are kids and those yeah. guards don't have mature brains. So no. it's a whole... You're put into this very powerful position. And it's like a, it's a power dynamic that doesn't, it's humiliating. I've seen it. And then also speaking to the the Croc situation, and also really just this in the entire piece as a whole, I wrote down uh, small spaces, high stakes. And the reason I wrote that down is because it's it's a pattern that I noticed um, while working uh, at, at a group home. The more confined, the more compact the space, everything matters so much more. Those crocs, he got he got that mad because he doesn't get anything. <laughs> and that's something that he was going to get. And it, it's a rare occurrence. And so it, like that 
that anger boils over because like, lo, I, I have nothing here. This is this is all I'm going to get for a while. You can't just open this door so I can grab it. Um, yes. It's wild to me that people don't realize it. This is something that I noticed within like the first few months of me working at this place. And the fact that people in these power positions act like it's a surprise when inmates get upset over things like this is is absurd. They they don't have anything. (laughs) You're taking away just something else that they were planning to get. It makes so much sense to me. I, I I so felt it. I mean... I mean, Allison, you and I had a conversation about how annoyed you were that I didn't return your charger. And, you know, I'm sure that you have another charger. But if you had only one charger and I was like, "Mm, sorry, I don't have your charger, that would be so shitty. I mean, and here are these guys that he described his Crocs, the old ones, they get a hole in them in like two months. They're wearing them every day, every second. It's all they have. Ah, I know. I would have gone from zero to crazy too. I am feeling crazy for him. I love his voice. It's so like rough, but like gentle. And, you you know, it speaks of so much like pain and experience. I don't know. It's like, I just want to sit and talk to him all day. Like, I feel like he's just full of knowledge. And in the story, he set us up like he he said, will someone be stabbed for a 65 cent soup? Owning a cell phone can cost a life like that. He planted the idea that violence, murder in prison happens unexpectedly, but it's expected. So when it did happen, it wasn't that surprising. Yeah, because like. Even in those, you know, those those spaces, the reason why the unexpected is, is the, well, not the reason why, but speaking to the fact that the unexpected is expected is because, you know, someone got stabbed. That's not something that happens every day, but everybody knew what to do. It happens a lot. I mean, I email these guys, uh, you know, JPay on the prison email system. And I'm like, how's your day? And I'll get these things. Not a great day. A lot of shit happened in here. You know, this guy got stabbed. This guy dropped. Yeah. And, and the guards are like, we'll get to it. They can't be bothered. It's something that's now so normal that nobody seems to value life. Except the, the guys in there. They value their own life. They don't, you know, they don't want to die. But no one else seems to value their life. The guards definitely don't. Nope. And he, and he actually talked about that, or he mentioned, he used language like that, like dead alive. Oh yeah, I'm in here alone, dead among the living. The unexpected, along with the cold grits and rubbery sausage is always expected. Ooh, that's how it should have ended. That's the second to last line. That really hit me. I thought there were two endings. I mean, it could have ended either place it, and it could have ended with the unexpected. Yeah, it's always expected. There's just one more line that's uh, the one about residing among a sea of lost souls. I actually, I love that. I mean, the, the along with the cold and rubbery sausage is always expected. That would have been a, a great ending. But I do love the I walk cautiously and alone um, line. I love how much it speaks because in the entirety of of the piece, He's always around people. In the beginning, he was around his siblings and his mother, and you know, later on, he's in in the um, in the system. So he's around all these inmates. But 
he's he's alone. And that's that's how it feels and that's how it is. Like uh, you were saying, Allison, you know, he cares about his life. There's other people there, but he cares about his life because really in situations like that, the only person that's for you is you. That's what the poet on our team um, says, <laughs> right? That, that last very poetic line about being alone among people. Good. Thank you, Rod, for sharing your story. After hearing the inmates' view of the violence in prison, we were curious to know what it feels like to work as a prison doctor. So we spoke to Karen Gedney, who spent 30 years doing just that. Hi, Karen. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Allison. How in the world did you end up being a prison doctor? Well, in essence, I grew up in a poor family. I did everything on scholarships. And one of the scholarships was uh, funded by the federal government. They paid for my medical school and I owed them four years to work in a place no one else would work. Now, I didn't think about where they were going to send me, but I ended up in a male uh, prison system in the state of Nevada. I ended up to do a four-year stint and then turned it into a calling that lasted 30 years. And did you run into some barriers? I mean, did you, do you feel like you were able to give the best care you could? There were barriers because the prison system is oriented to punish and shame. And I was oriented to understand and heal. So I think you can imagine what it would be like for a prison system that never really had a doctor. And then the federal government dumps you in there and I'm a tall blonde. And on top of it, I was married to an African-American male. And the prison was next to a city that did not have, let's say, one person that looked like my husband in the entire city. That's the Carson City, Nevada, back in 1980s. And so I ended up in the prison being looked at as a liability. They looked at me as the slur was inmate lover. (laughs) And they also investigated me because they said I gave preferential treatment to Black inmates. I must say in the prison, um, the poetry and the writing classes were phenomenal in my prison system because we had the poet laureate for the state, Sean Griffin, teaching writing in my prison. Question that I that um, that we wanted to know is why did you leave? Well, after 30 years, I had seen, let's say, the pendulum of the prison swing back and forth between the light and the dark and the light and the dark. And it had gone back to the dark side again. And a lot of things happened which created more and more limitations. And after 30 years of fighting and considering I was in my 60s now, and if you're a state employee, you're basically working literally for free. And I thought maybe it's a time for a pivot where maybe I can help the inmates more on the outside. It's sort of like you hit your head against a wall for too often. And then you think, well, maybe I should pivot and go around the wall and attack it from a different side. 
anyone who has been or worked in the prison system is sitting there with their jaw open that you lasted 30 years. I mean, it is a brutal place. Even it doesn't matter which side you're on. If you're on the, if you at all advocate for the prisoners, you're toast. Like they want to make your life miserable. Well, every prison is different. Um, And Many prisons, like our prison, unfortunately charged inmates to be seen by a doctor, $8 copay. Now, the thing is, once we put them on a chronic clinic, like an asthmatic is a chronic patient, then anything related to their asthma was not charged again. Because I really fought the prison administration that wanted to recoup money losses But I fought them and said, if you don't at least have the chronic patients get really access to medical care and medicines that they need, it is ultimately going to cost you so much more money because there'll be emergencies. And that's why we had chronic clinics. But every person's different. And also, if you have inhalers, they're different types. Some are rescue inhalers and some are inhalers that prevent you from getting the attack in the first place. So guys can run out of a rescue inhaler. And then if they panic, you can see how that can go downhill fast. What would you say to some, to the naysayers out there? Because I'm sure people who are listening are thinking, why do we care about saving the guys that have done these bad things? Well, my view is, especially in the health field, if you take care of anyone my first move is to help that person. And we never in emergency rooms and real hospitals say, wait a second, uh, are you one of the white bankers that screwed an entire city out of retirement (laughs) funds? I don't think we should fix your heart. We don't do that. You don't do that? (laughs) Right. I look at it holistically. You prevent people from ending up in the criminal justice system. If they do, you heal them on the inside as much as you can. And then when they leave, you support them as much as possible so they become an asset to society. Thank you for doing that for 30 years, for just caring for people for 30 years. Yeah, it, uh, well, it it just seemed, I call it serendipity. Other people would call it, you know, maybe something more spiritual. But if someone had said, you're training all these years to be a doctor, we're just going to put you in a prison, I'd be like, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. And thank you, Dr. Gedney, for insight into the prison medical system. If you want to read more about Dr. Karen Gedney's prison doctor experience, check out Karen's book, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. We'll have a link in the show notes. In the next episode in the series, you will meet Dutch Simmons, a formerly incarcerated writer who spent two years in a federal prison. Writing Class Radio is produced by Allison Langer, Zaire, me, Andrea Askowitz, and Matt Kundal and Evan Serminski at the Sound Off Media Company. Music by Marnino Toussaint and Zaire. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, essays to study, and editing resources. If you love the lessons you get on each episode, 
You can get them all in one place on our three-part video series for just $50. Click video classes on our website. If you want to be part of the movement that helps people better understand each other through storytelling, follow us on Patreon. For $10 a month, I will answer all your publishing questions. For $25 a month, you can join Allison's first draft weekly writers group. You will write to a prompt and share your work. That meets every Tuesday from noon to one Eastern, and it's awesome. Go to patreon.com slash writing class radio. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. So listen for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.